welcome to the Sacramentalists, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Wesley Walker. And I'm Father Creighton McElveen. And today we are very excited to be joined by uh, Peter Volk. Uh, Peter's a writer and speaker who talks about discernment and vocational singleness and Christian sexuality. He's the director of Equip, which is a consulting and training solution for churches aspiring to be places where gay Christians thrive for a lifetime according to historic sexual ethic. Um, And Peter is pursuing the diaconate in the Anglican Church of North America and is the founder of the Nashville Family of Brothers, which is an ecumenical monastery for those caused to kingdom singleness. Thanks for joining us today, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for for having me on. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you. You might want to tell listeners where you just were recently in Central America. Yeah, I was in Ecuador. So uh, the work I do with Equip brought me to a K through 12 Christian school in Ecuador to help teachers uh, talk to students about God's love and wisdom for gay people, um, which is a really neat opportunity. Uh, And I'm uh, looking forward to going back and having some more direct conversation with students and parents and and some local pastors. So, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about Equip. Um, How did it start? How long have you been doing it? What kind of things do you do? Yeah, so Equip got started eight years ago, um, and in many ways born out of my own personal experience of being a Christian and being gay or same-sex attracted and being committed to a traditional sexual ethic and feeling like the my parents and the pastors that I had interacted with didn't know how to support me, didn't know how to minister to me. Um, and then as I started doing life with other Christians with similar stories and convictions, they had the same experience that their parents and pastors didn't know how to to support them. And so eight years ago, uh, looked around locally and regionally for a ministry that was equipping parents and pastors to do that work. And when I couldn't find anything, felt like the Lord was calling me to, to start that. So um, so that's a lot of what we do at Equip. Um, we equip pastors and parents with the understanding and skills to better love and serve um, people who experience same-sex attraction according to a historic sexual ethic. Um, and, and over the past eight years, you know, uh, our ministry and our kind of our mission has matured a bit. And so a lot of what we do, uh, now is, is particularly, um, meeting with church leaders and help them get a clear vision and strategy for long-term ministry, um, in their church on not only, uh, kind of ministering to LGBT plus people, but more broadly, how do we teach about and and offers discipleship around sexual stewardship for all people. Um, and so, yeah, so that's a bit about what Equip does. Um, we we work with Anglican churches, but we also work with plenty of, uh, of other churches and other denominations. Um, and we are really, um, yeah, we're really proud uh, and humbled by the work that we get to do. So the people who uh, who support the podcast, uh, they we call them members of our our communion Patreon saints. Um, yeah, and and okay. when they when they support us, they get invited to a Discord channel. And when you're on the Discord channel, we always announce what guests we have coming up and whether people have questions. And I think one of the biggest questions that people had when we announced that we were going to be talking with you um, was about the term gay Christian. Mm. Um, and this is a term that has gotten some pushback, the sort of side B approach to this, uh, issue. Um, in particular, it seems like one of the, one of the issues people have is with, um, identifying oneself through the adjective or through an adjective that's associated with the fall, 
right? Sure. Um, so gay, Christian. Uh, so I'm just curious what kind of response you would have. I know Creighton and I probably have a number of things and we probably overlap quite a bit, but, but how would you respond to that question? Yeah, so language and particularly the English language is complicated, right? This, this is not the French language where there's some academy that decides what words mean for uh, all people who speak that language. And we can point back to that and say, that's the right definition. You know, that's what gay really means when someone uses the word gay. Uh, that doesn't exist. And, and, and words for different people have different meaning and different baggage. And so I think that's what's complicated about this conversation is the word gay means one thing to some people and one thing to another. Uh, the phrase same-sex attraction means has baggage for some people and, and doesn't have baggage for others. And so um, what I really appreciate about, you know, I'm, I'm as you said, I'm uh, in the process of, of discerning um, being a, becoming a deacon in the Anglican Church of North America. Um, and what I really appreciate about the wisdom of the, um, the College of Bishops kind of pastoral statement on, on sexuality um, is, is um, exploring that the words we use are important um, and, and ultimately making, making a recommendation that when, um, you know, any of us who are leaders in the ACNA are, are particularly uh, speaking in any official capacity as, uh, as clergy or speaking to an Anglican audience or, or speaking in an, in an Anglican venue that, that we kind of out of respect uh, for, for their authority and their recommendations, you know, use the phrase Christians who experience same-sex attraction. Um, and simultaneously, the, the authors, the kind of first writers of that uh, pastoral statement from the College of Bishops, um, in kind of some podcasts that they've done exploring kind of their the motivations for writing the College of Bishops statement, and um, they have discussed that they recognize that there are times when um, you know, clergy may be doing evangelism or, or, or reaching out to um, non-Christians or, or teenagers or young adults whom different language may be more effective than Christians who experience same-sex attraction. Um, and those bishops blessed the kind of uh, the, the strategic use of different language with different audiences. Um, to particularly to 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 for the purposes of evangelism and 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 to be missional, and so you know what, so I you know in in submission to to my bishop Bishop Alec Cameron in the Diocese of Pittsburgh, um, you know I, I want to lean into that and observe and honor those requests, and so you know when I'm doing kind of public ministry that's on social media or kind of writing articles for places like Christianity Today, and my audience is is a more broader American Christian and not audience. And when I imagine when I'm writing these things that the first reader is a, is a, a teenager who experiences same sex attraction or gender incongruence uh, and maybe Christian or not, or a young adult who that's their story. I want to use the language that's most effective with reaching them. And so I'm going to use the words they tend to use in conversation. Uh, the words gay, the word, the, fr uh, the moniker LGBT plus, the word queer, um, the phrase sexual minorities or gender minorities, because those are the words they're using. And I'm going to have a hard enough time convincing them that a God exists and that that God's wisdom about sexual ethics is best for them. If I add on a whole nother barrier of using different words than they use and then policing the words they use, uh, it's going to make it even harder for me to reach them with the gospel. But when I'm speaking in an Anglican context or to an Anglican audience, um, I'm, I'm eager to respect 
you know, the College of Bishops uh, statement and 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 the request of my particular bishop. So, so yeah, I'll, I'll say then briefly about this phrase "gay Christian." You know, um, to some people that word "gay" just means boys who are attracted to boys, girls or who are attracted to girls. Nothing more. Nothing about who someone is ontologically. Nothing about what their theological convictions are or what kind of people they're seeking out relationships with. It's just a word, you know, a, a phenomenological word to describe like someone's experience, how it appears in the most common language. So when I use that word, that's how I use it, you know, but I'm also pretty particular to say when I use the phrase gay Christian to describe myself, that I'm a gay Christian committed to a historic sexual ethic. Um, and I think it's important for me to include, to clarify that I'm a Christian, you know, who also is same-sex attracted, um, and all those things are submitted to the Lordship of Christ. Um, and, and I use that phrase because for a lot of my audience, uh, particularly in public ministry, the phrase same-sex attraction is actually pretty strongly connected with the Pray the Gay Away movement. Um, that's the movement that popularized that phrase. Um, and, and scientific studies have shown that participation in those pray the gay away efforts, those sexual orientation change efforts, uh, doubled the rate of suicide among LGBT plus people. Um, and so really, but was also 96% ineffective in changing sexual orientation. So that phrase for a lot of people, that phrase same-sex attraction is, is strongly associated with harmful and ineffective practices over past decades. So that's why I tend to avoid that phrase. Um, in public ministry and use the phrase gay Christian committed to a historic sexual ethic, but recognizing that like the phrase gay Christian committed to a historic sexual ethic is imperfect as well. It's got its problems as well. I'm not saying it's a perfect phrase. I'm just saying with certain audiences, it's got less problems than the phrase same-sex attraction. I like the fact that you're willing to to sort of engage the phenomenological right that the gospel touches every part of who we are mm -hmm. and you know if you want to take a less controversial you know word or phrase people do this all the time with their self-understanding of christianity mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. we refer to american christians or english christians or um, christian nationalists per our christian. last episode just <laughs> <laughs> eek um but yeah, we we do that. We 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 bring in and incorporate aspects of um, how we see ourselves and our context and our experience uh, into our Christianity because you know it's it's difficult not to do that. We're 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 humans, um, you know, living and experiencing, and that's that's part of what we do. Um, the only the the one of the things that that you know I think is interesting that's come up. A little bit in our discord and and as we've talked with some people is um just the 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 sort of isolating of a particular experience um as an adjective right like um saying well like are we are we are we being reductionist or or something like that by saying gay christian um how would you how would you sort of engage with that that particular question or pushback or, or, or situation. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, a couple things. One, yeah, I think you're right. That is, it's important to distinguish that when, when I and some other people are using this phrase, um, we're not making an ontological statement. We're not saying that, that fundamentally who we are is something different. Um, 
you know, I, I don't believe that me experiencing same-sex attractions was God's intention. I believe that when God first imagined me being born into a perfect world, he imagined me being exclusively opposite sex attracted. I believe I developed these attractions as a result of the fall. Uh, you know, I've said those repeatedly and I'll continue to say those things. I believe those things. Um, so when I'm using this phrase, I'm not even really identifying with, I'm not identifying with gay sex. Um, you know, I'm not identifying with same sex attractions even. I'm identifying with other people who have had a similar experience. And I would say particularly a similar experience of, of the closet, of feeling the need to hide that this is a part of my story. The wounds that were accrued in the closet, the ways that the enemy tortured me and others in the closet, and our journey to bring our whole selves to the Lord and then to the body of Christ and make sense of this and submit our, uh, our sexualities and our brokenness to the Lordship of Jesus. Um, so when I use, when I, that's what I'm, you know, identifying with. Um, but yeah, to the question of, you know, gosh, if we just, it, it, we would have a never ending list of accordion style business cards identifiers if we kind of identified ourselves with every aspect of our uh, affinities and preferences and sensibilities that, that wasn't, you know, what was unanimously, <laughs> you know, true of all people, that, that it would just be endless and, and kind of why. Um, you know, I've had a lot of conversation with, uh, some of my peers in other countries who are Christian, same sex attracted and committed to a traditional sexual ethic about how this phenomena is similar or different in the U S versus other places. And the conclusion I've come to is the U S is just too big. There's too many people in it for, for people to just identify as Americans or American Christians and that feel like it's a small enough group of people that to, to find security. Like just from a, like a, a socio, sociological, anthropological angle, we have this like desire as humans to be a part of a group that's small enough to where we're going to, we, we're confident we're going to find, we're going to be protected and we're going to find belonging. And something that reassures humans that we have a group is, is, is that it's small enough and that, that, that the, the group is gate kept. You know, that there are boundaries around that group. So it's just true that in America, that's too big. And so we reach out for other cultural identities beyond just being an American or an American Christian to find a sense of a, a smaller group of people to identify with so that we feel a sense of belonging. And even if we don't put words to this, we all do this in America. And I think we do have a problem in America with like cultural identity having too much power. Um, and and then I think for those who are in kind of the minority and um, along any kind of cultural um, uh, sphere, um, they they feel a greater need to kind of identify or to name the ways that they are called culturally a part of this minority, um, because 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 it, generally those in the minority need need more need more belonging. Um, and and find more camaraderie among those who have a shared experience and who's that whose shared experience is, is less common. Um, so this is true with race in America. This is true with sexuality in America. This is true with other things in America. So uh, I don't think that's good for American Christianity. Uh, but I also think this is kind of like, unfortunately, some unavoidable stuff in the soup of being a Christian in America. You know, like it's just kind of big. I grew up surrounded by... Um, forces that said cultural identity in america 
matters and has power. And it's hard for me not to feel that. And it's hard for any American not to feel that and get sucked into that. So I think some of what I, um, in an ideal world would just identifying as a Christian be, be enough. Yeah. And we'd be a little naive to say that uh, in America, other cultural identities don't have a lot of power. And instead of pretending like they don't, we could name that they have power and then we could rightly order those. Um, and, and I think that's what, and I hope that that's when people hear my testimony, that's what they hear me doing is rightly ordering everything under the Lordship of Christ. Um, and yeah, so I'll leave it there. I, I will say, I think that your approach and the apostle Paul's approach are very similar in this regard in that, um, you, you, in these kind of discussions, you often hear Galatians three quoted, you know, there's no male or female, no slave or Greek, no, uh, no slave or free, no, um, no, uh, Jew or Greek. And, um, you know, baptismally, uh, I think that's clearly the point that he's trying to make, you know, that, that, that baptism kind of erases the, those, uh, those boundaries, um, as, as significant, but obviously he doesn't, uh, he doesn't, say that Jewish people who have been baptized are no longer participating in Jewishness, right? Um, there is still an ongoing reality in which they are they are engaging in that. And so he says, you know, you, you can, I mean, I don't think he's going to tell Jews that they can't be Jews, but that there's, there's a way to do that that's informed by the gospel. Um, every facet of your identity then falls under that kind of overarching um, part of our identity or the organizing principle of our identity. So um, I'm I'm very supportive of this and think think it makes the most sense because it it gives us a language to address people um, given their the struggles that they have and and their needs which are specific to them. Yeah. I'll also I also want to like honor name give credence to some of the fears among. Um, you know, those who would prefer for me to, to just use the, the phrase same-sex attraction, particularly within our denomination, that, <clears throat> that uh, well, this feels like a slippery slope. Or, well, I've known people who called themselves gay Christians and said they were committed to a traditional sexual ethic, but a couple of months or years later, they abandoned a progressive sexual ethic. And it just seems too dangerous. And, oh, I know some people who call themselves gay Christians and they say that they're not uh, that they are, they say that they're primarily a Christian and they say that they're not ontologically something different, but it seems like their connection with gay culture is rewriting everything about how they see themselves. And all those things are true for some people, you know? And I think this is why the discipleship around this is really complicated, um, is because, okay, maybe it's, maybe someone, um, kind of weighs the different options and finds that the phrase gay Christian is most helpful. But I think we as Christians who experience same-sex attractions, you still have to be vigilant that uh, kind of a gay cultural script doesn't rewrite all of the ways we see ourselves. Um, and, and I think uh, I've needed, you know, when friends are wondering whether or not that's true for me and they've called me out on it, I've, I've needed to hear that and I've welcomed that. And so I think that maybe in, in, a, in a careful way, that's also needed in discipleship. Um, and uh, and I, I, don't know, I, wanna, I wanna recognize that, that that's real for those critics who, who would raise that. Now we did want to talk about um, the issue of singleness and the yeah. calling of of singleness. So, um, from a theological perspective, I think it's it's easy 
for a lot of folks in our pews to grasp the significance of the sacrament of marriage. Mm -hmm. I mean, marriage is the first sacrament instituted before the fall. St. Paul argues it foreshadows the union between Christ and the church. Um, most of our parishioners probably are or have been married. Um, many seem to have a tougher time with theologically accounting for vocational singleness and celibacy. In fact, I had three conversations about it last week in my, in my parish, um, kind of an ongoing conversation. Um, and I thought it was very interesting. So, so help us out a little bit. What's the theological undergirding for vocational singleness? Yeah, so I think the first distinction that's really helpful to make is that the kind of singleness we're all born into is distinct from the kind of singleness that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 19 and Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 7. Because when we conflate those things, that, that, that's, the, that's the first step of making this all really messy and hard to uh, appreciate. And so, okay, we're all born single. Um, you know, even those who like uh, their parents have already kind of signed some paper that they're going to marry someone when they're 18. Um, like you're single, you're not married yet. Right. Uh, and we're all born into uh, a calling to abstinence um, and a calling to chastity. That's by default. Okay. Then in Matthew 19 um, and in first Corinthians seven, Jesus and Paul are talking about a kind of singleness that is intentionally stepped into that is distinct from the singleness we're born into. It, it, it's something we have to opt into. Um, and, and the early church um, unanimously understood this kind of singleness Jesus and Paul are talking about to be a permanent renunciation of dating and romance and marriage and sex and biological children. So, so, so obviously to, to transition from default singleness we're all born into to a lifetime singleness, I mean, there's you, you've got to step step out of that temporary singleness and into this vocational singleness. Um, uh, those passages also say that the, 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 that that's in response to a, a calling um, to that vocation of singleness, um, that there's a gift, a provision of grace offered to do that well, similarly to Christian marriage. Um, and the, the point of that vocational singleness um, nowhere in scripture does it suggest that the point of that is to go into a closet um, and spend more time praying and connecting with Jesus. Um, and that wasn't the understanding of the early church either. What you see actually in scripture is the point of this vocational singleness is to do the kingdom work and some kinds of kingdom work that parents don't have the time, energy, or financial freedom to do. Um, they're like kingdom work like SWAT team members um, is, is the point of vocational singleness. So the point is for them to, with single-minded devotion, with, 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 with undistracted focus, um, to, to help bring forth the kingdom more quickly. Um, and what we, see in, what we seem to see in Scripture, and certainly under the understanding of the early church, is it's still a call to lifelong, lived-in human family in the body of Christ. Uh, organized differently than Christian marriage, obviously, um, and and it's it's a call to giving up romance and sex. Um, so, but it's still a call to kind of non-romantic, non-sexual um, human intimacy. Um, so, and that was basically the unanimous understanding of you know you read through lots of church fathers and mothers in the third century and fourth century and fifth century. This was like this this was obvious to them. 
Um, this is obvious to the disciples of the apostles and their disciples and their disciples and their disciples. Um, and this is, you know, still the consensus understanding of the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church and 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 many parts of, of the global Anglican communion. So, um, you know, those who maybe doubt this, this understanding of scripture are, are in uh, certainly the vast minority uh, in the history of the church and still in the minority of global Christians today. Um, so, but I think this is really important because um, what Jesus is introducing, particularly in Matthew 19 then, is an alternative to Christian marriage that is very sacramental. Some might argue even is a, you know, full uppercase S sacrament um, to stand alongside marriage, um, not to compete with it, um, and, and is not going to be as common as it, but to serve a different purpose. Um, and, and the different purpose is, uh, well, one, you now join Jesus's family, not by birth into a Jewish family, but by accepting the gift of his work on the cross. So now procreation is not the only way to grow the body of Christ, God's people, um, which whole other conversation that doesn't do away with the procreation mandate for those called to marriage. It just means that not all are commanded to marry and procreate anymore. Okay. But sidebar, um, but then, okay, but Jesus didn't just come to 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 uh, to to broaden the covenant, broaden the invitation to being part of God's people. Um, he came to bring the new heavens and new earth. Um, and so, part of the one of the big reasons why Jesus establishes this this other vocation alongside Christian marriage, vocational singleness, is to have a minority of Christians who are solely focused on the work of bringing forth the kingdom more quickly. You know, and particularly spending all of the time and energy that they would spend on raising kids if they were in Christian marriage instead on other kingdom work. Um, now, I want to, last thing I'll say is, uh, obviously raising kids within the context of Christian marriage is super important kingdom work. So I don't want to in any way downgrade that. And every married person I know raising kids um, would say, uh, <clears throat> yeah, gosh, if I wasn't raising kids, I would have so much more time and energy to put into my counseling practice. I would have so much more time and energy to being a school teacher. I would have so much more time and energy to go into um, um, medical care for refugees and immigrants in our community. I would have so much more time and energy to put into dot, 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 dot. Um, so there, there's a real way that those called to vocational singles have, have, have a capacity to bring forth the kingdom in other ways that the that, that, that parents don't. And that, that was what Jesus was, was instituting in Matthew 19. Um, so. I know Father Creighton has talked about this in, in other places, but I mean, the, the example of Our Lady uh, kind of strikes me as pertinent to this conversation. I mean, yes, there is this idea of procreation. Procreation is good. It's important. It's an, an unnecessary aspect of the sacrament of marriage, but one can be fruitful uh, apart from that. And Our Lady is probably the best example because she's all of our mothers. Father Creighton, I don't know if you want to say more about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think in some in some ways we have a very limited, narrow sort of definition of what it means to for 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 uh, fecundity, right? What does fruitfulness actually mean? And the the common definition doesn't take account of vocational singleness. It doesn't take a take into account people that are called to uh, a celibate lifestyle and. And they can certainly exercise spiritual fatherhood and motherhood um, 
in a parallel way, it's not exactly the same as, you know, having a couple kids or, or whatever. Um, but through their work and their ministries and their life as Christians called to the celibate um, sort of experience, uh, they're making disciples, they're um, holding people to account, they are mentoring, they're, they're doing all these things that parents do. Um, and we see that in the history of the church. Um, the, the monastic uh, sort of exemplars throughout church history, I mean, they're all single, and yet their spiritual children, I mean, if, if you're a devotee of St. John of the Cross uh, today, you're a spiritual child of St. John of the Cross. Um, and his, his particular vocation to that way of life and the grace that God gave him to, to actualize it um, is, is being shared. It's, it's, it's in your life now um, and those that he's touched. And I think, I think Our Lady really embodies that sort of apostolic fruitfulness. Um, and, you know, that's something we're all called to do, but it's something we can't forget about uh, for those who are called to a, to vocational uh, singleness or celibacy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's powerful. So theologically, I think that the, the case has been made. I, I think I completely agree with you that this is a very important uh, thing for us to recover theologically. What are some benefits of retaining and encouraging the call to vocational singleness from a specifically Anglican perspective? Because um, I think the reasons we've given so far have been fairly general, which is great and a good place to start. But are, are there any advantages from from Anglicanism in particular? Yeah, so I think, well, one, I'll say that I think as Anglicans, we have an opportunity to retrieve this um, and maybe some ways that other uh, Protestant uh, traditions may find more challenging because we have a history uh, over the past 500 years. And then and then the Anglican, the, the church Catholic in England before that, um, we have a, a history of, of believing this kind of historic theology around vocational singleness um, of, of inviting people to discern whether they are called to the vocation of marriage or the vocation of singleness um, of, of valuing the, the ministry of those in vocational singleness of having monasteries, both cloistered, but also uh, in an urban setting and uncloistered uh, where uh, those called to vocational singleness find family. We have, we have a history uh, and, 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 and some, uh, perhaps uh, uh, dusty, but still existing uh, institutional knowledge and wisdom um, about these things that we can tap into. Um, and maybe unlike some other denominations, there's nothing um, inside of our denominational documents or inside of our history that says that we must reject any of these historic or biblical ideas in order to be true to our denomination's heritage actually teaching and embodying these things is a part of our denomination's heritage. Um, and so um, I think that's, I think that's powerful. You know, I think, um, I think having a robust teaching and support of vocational singleness is also really essential to an Anglican understanding of, of, of heaven and of the new heavens and new earth and of, and of our embodiment and of, uh, of, of sacramental theology. Like, I think if you've got a, uh, some some listeners 
who are really into, you know, N.T. Wright's work of kind of repackaging and reteaching believers about the import about the reality of the new heavens and the new earth, and then why our bodies now and our matter and this world, physical world now matters. Um, if that's true, then vocational singleness is one of the primary vehicles to make all that happen. Um, it's one of the it's 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 one of the primary vehicles. Um, it's, it's this minority of people called to particularly care for all of the, 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 the physical, um, and to particularly think of, of redeeming all of creation and have, and not just the, 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 the creatures that we, that we bore in mother's wombs, but the, all of the rest of creation, um, that also takes a lot of time and energy to, to tend to and to care for and to nurture. Um, so, um, so yeah, I think there's institutional history. I think there's, I think it fits, uh, our, our broader theology about, um, about creation and about embodiment. Um, and, and I think that a, uh, you know, recently I, I posted about my favorite GK Chesterton quote, which is, uh, when the monks return, so will marriage. And, and I think it's true that a healthy, you know, teaching and, and uh, support of vocational singleness and, and, and discernment, this idea that every Christian young adult should, should recognize what our preference is, set that to the side, and then ask God, God, which gift do you want to give me? Do you want to give me the gift of Christian marriage, or do you want to give me the gift of vocational singleness, and step into whichever one God wants to give would lead to healthier Christian marriages in our churches? And, and my hunch is, uh, if we led every Christian young adult to intentionally discern it would lead to more people in Christian marriage and more people in Christian marriage for the right reasons. Um, and I think that's something that we want in, in, in Anglican churches and in Anglican communities. So <clears throat> for all these reasons, I think this is a good move uh, for us to make. And um, yeah, and I, and I hope that, that there's some really practical ways that different dioceses and perhaps provinces take some steps in, uh, in teaching more about this and maybe you know, writing a kind of a liturgy for kind of a commissioning ceremony for those called to vocational singleness, um, gathering those who are called to vocational singleness and honoring their um, their their kingdom work and their calling, um, perhaps, um, uh, you know, helping people and in cultivate intentional Christian communities connected to their parishes where vocational singles could find lifelong lived in families. So I think there's all really cool opportunities uh, for our churches that are that, that are that are going to serve many more people than just those called to vocational singleness in our churches. Could you talk a little bit about how you're doing some of that stuff with the Nashville family of brothers? Yeah. So, uh, you know, around 2017, 2018, when I felt some clarity that I was called to vocational singleness, I went to, um, my priest, the late Thomas McKenzie and asked him, uh, how, how am I going to, how, how am I going to find family? Um, as someone called a vocational singleness, I know I still need that in a really meaningful way. I've not been given you know, a magical gift of celibacy that, that, that all I, that I feel like all I need is Jesus. Um, um, and not because Jesus is inadequate in any way to be clear. Um, but like we even see in the heaven or excuse me in the garden before the fall, when all God, when all Adam had was God, God said that that was not good. That that was not how he meant for it to be. He meant for us humans to have human relationship and relationship with more than, than just God. 
Uh, and then, and then sin happens and the fall happens. And then I'm even more separated from a God who I made for relationship with. So, uh, by my own sin and by the brokenness of the world anyway. So, uh, father Thomas McKenzie responded to my question he, and he said, well, unfortunately, I don't think you're going to find the kind of family you need at our church or at any church in Nashville anytime soon. And he could say this with some authority because he, you know, he was married. Um, but he had a number of celibate friends, particularly in a monastery out in the uh, Southwest that he was connected to. He knew what celibate men needed to be faithful, but he responded. So he responded, he followed up and he said, but I think you, but, but, but monasticism has been the most common way that celibate people have found family in the church. Uh, monasticism has been the greatest source of evangelism in the church. It's been the greatest source of theology in the church. It's been the greatest source of social justice in the church. So I think you should gather with some other people inside and outside of our church, start some kind of um, modern monastery thing, stay connected to our church, teach us how to do this better, but also kind of find the family that you need um, uh, through through some kind of monastery. Um, so that was in 2018, and, the, and we got started pretty quickly on forming what's now the Nashville Family of Brothers, which is a ecumenically Christian uh, community family brotherhood for men called to vocational singleness regardless of sexual orientation so it's not just for guys who experience same-sex attraction we've got guys of a variety of, of of kind of backgrounds and stories in our community and uh and yeah we're ecumenically christian um so you know some of us are baptists some of us are presbyterian some of us are anglicans some of us are non-denoms um and we still go to our local churches on wednesdays and sundays and, and we see that our primary place of of spiritual authority and discipleship is our local church, you know, so our, our home is not a replacement for church. Um, and, and we're not cloistered away from, you know, our biological families or our friends or whatnot, or we, we are connected um, very much to, to our community. Um, but the ways we are like a typical monastery um, is that, well, one, we have, we live according to a community covenant, you know, a, a common rule of life. And, we pray together every morning and we do confession uh, together and um, we uh, we do kind of some monthly kind of worship and prayer stuff together, welcoming the Sabbath. Um, we do, and we're a family. We, we do holidays and vacations together and we have uh, meals together each week. Um, and we are uh, discerning whether to make lifetime commitments to vocational singleness and to our, our community. Um, um, and then we do believe that, you know, vocational singleness is a call to leverage your availability and singleness for the sake of the kingdom. So the way that we do that is we don't have like a collective mission that we all do, but we are each individually discerning how we are going to leverage, particularly the first fruits of our labor, how we're going to leverage our nine to five jobs for the sake of the kingdom. And we're each on kind of our own path of discovering how God is calling, what kind of kingdom work God is calling each of us to, and then what steps we need to do to, 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 to get there. So, so that's, that's what we're doing with the Nashville, uh, family of brothers. Uh, so it, it's, I mean, it's a, it's a place for me to find like family, you know, eventually family with men who were committed to each other for a lifetime. Um, but it's also a place where I'm, I'm being sanctified. I'm being challenged. Iron is sharpening iron and where I'm being pushed to leverage my singleness for the sake of the kingdom. Um, so yeah, I'm super grateful for, you know, for Father Thomas's prodding and, and, and support to make this happen um, and, and for, for what, I, what we've found. That's awesome. Um, so it just sort of taking some of what you've been talking about there, um, how would we sort of transpose that to the, to the local parish 
context? What, what kind of tips um, do you see um, that we can implement um, for those who, who want that sort of space um, where gay Christians can flourish, where people who are called to vocational celibacy can flourish within, within the sort of parish context? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll do kind of like my ideal world answer first, and then I'll do like a low-hanging fruit answer second. Um, so, you know, I think in an ideal world, and maybe particularly in, you know, larger cities uh, where a lot of, but, but maybe also where a lot of kind of teens from your church are going to go to college locally and then and then perhaps stick around afterwards because there's a lot of opportunities for um for uh, employment and for you know like and, and fun cultural stuff in that city so that they're likely to stick around um you know and in an ideal world we would be teaching our kids to expect that they one day discern between vocational singleness and christian marriage uh from a young age in age-appropriate ways and then once our you know teens are getting to like end of high school and then getting into college, we, we disciple them to start intentionally discerning what God is calling them to. Um, and then maybe by the time that, you know, some of these uh, college age students who have been kind of going to our churches since they were, since they were baptized, um, maybe they get to their junior year or their senior year of college. And some of them feel like they might be called to vocational singleness Um Maybe then there is a a, a home uh, kind of close to your local church that the church owns or is renting and encourages those people who feel called to vocational singles to move into that home and make just a one-year commitment. Live in this house, do rhythms of prayer and confession and meals and holidays with the people in this house. Continue discerning whether or not you're called to make a three-year commitment to vocational singleness. Um, and then these rhythms in this house also kind of challenge them to think critically about their kingdom work and, and what do they do after college and how are they going to leverage their nine-to-five job for the sake of the kingdom? And maybe this parlays into some of those people making three-year commitments and some of those people making five-year commitments and 10-year commitments and lifetime commitments. And then they live in this home connected to their church um, and serve their church and serve their local community. And, 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 and that is just kind of a known... Um, extension of, of of the local church um and that and that that you know kids three-year-olds five-year-olds ten-year-olds growing up in the church are aware of that pathway and that opportunity to find family in the body of christ if you're called a vocational singleness and and they're the cool people that live in this house you know they're not they're they're not the just kind of weirdos who couldn't find someone to have sex with them like they're the cream of the crop um who said yes to a to a positive calling to vocational singleness? Um, so, I think our churches can can like, I think particularly in, in larger cities and where people st stay around and stick around, like every single one of our churches could do that. Um, and 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 I think that could be a co-ed space where maybe top floors girls, bottom floors boys, whatever you know. But like you, I think there's beautiful ways that we can create that. Uh, okay, but that's that's the ideal world, and maybe a lot of churches, you know, won't be able to start with that solution. Um, so, um, but I think in a small way, um, uh, I think pastors can, uh, you know, do what Thomas encouraged us to do, and what he said was, "Well, why don't you find a couple of other single people?" Uh, and do something for a year 
live together, pray together, do some meals. You don't have to make it super structured. You don't have to make it super formal. Just do something for a year and then be open to the Lord leading you to something more specific. Start small. And, and, and it doesn't have to be just people at our church. It can be people at other churches as well. But, you know, I, your rector, I will guide you through this process. I will provide you with support. I will coach you through this. Um, and, and Father McKenzie was a huge support for us. Um, and then eventually we kind of established a, a pastoral advisory board made up of pastors from a variety of denominations, um, pastors from a variety of local churches in Nashville from a variety of denominations that provide oversight for our community. Um, and, and, and even that was like in many ways based on just kind of extending the kind of support that, that Father Thomas was already providing. So, so yeah, that, those are the kind of solutions that I think are, are steps that our churches can take. Um, yeah. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, for joining us today, Peter. Uh, one thing we like to do at the end of every episode um, is we do a little segment called What We're Into, where we talk about one thing, could be a book, movie, experience, uh, music, whatever uh, that we're into lately. So what have you been into uh, lately? Mm. I probably should have given you a warning. I think I, I usually tell uh, guests that we do this, and I think I forgot to tell you. Oh, <laughs> no worries. If you need a second, we can let Father Creighton go first. Yeah, I'm like looking around my room to try to remind myself what things I'm into recently. Uh, other than other than workaholism, yes, uh, which we right. can have a whole other conversation about uh, those called to uh, vocational singleness. Um, you know, managing workaholism. Yes, um, but uh, <laughs> <clears throat> um, Father Creighton, why don't you go ahead and then we'll go back to Peter? Yeah, I'll give you some time to think. Um, okay, there you go. So. Uh, one of the things I've been into lately is um, not not only do we make podcasts, but I consume lots of podcasts as well. Um, I think a lot of people uh, nowadays do with long commutes or, um, you know, walking the dog or whatever. One of the ones that I am uh, obsessed with and uh, the episodes are long um, so if you're, if you're ready for three or four hour podcast, uh, episode, um, it's called fall of civilizations. Mm. Um, and mm. I love history podcasts. Um, and so, um, fall of civilizations is done by uh, a guy named Paul Cooper and he is, um, an author and he's also interested in history and the, the sort of questions surrounding um, what it means to uh, live in a particular society or culture and then to experience the the collapse of that culture um, and so he goes through um, some of the most you know historically significant and famous uh, civilizations like he does stuff with the Assyrians and the Inca um, the Han Dynasty in China the Aztecs you know, et cetera, et cetera, as a fall of Byzantine, uh, a fall of Byzantium and all sorts of uh, interesting stuff. And it's super, super thorough. And it is fascinating. He He's he's sort of captivating because he he really knows how to, to use the English language. Um, but um, yeah, it's just like a, it's just it's just fun to listen to and interesting. And um, it's like real life Game of Thrones some uh some of the times so. uh, 
Fall of Civilizations. I would definitely give it a recommend. Um, there's also a YouTube channel, and and he puts on some like, you know, pretty stunning visuals to go with the with the episodes. Um, so if you've got a couple hours to spare, or you have a long commute, give it a listen. Yeah, I recently went on a well. By recently, I mean like a year ago. Went on a cruise, and one of the stops, uh, it was in Mexico, and we were going to go on like an excursion and see some Mayan ruins. And I think I listened to their their uh, that episode about the Mayan civilization because I was just like I wanted kind of some background info as I like see these these like uh, you know these structures and these and these ruins. Uh, and it was it was really fascinating. It's so good, it's so yeah. good. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I thought of some of mine. So on uh, like a little bit more fun level, um, I uh, recently did one of these like, um, I, so I like running uh, and I've liked running for a long time. And one of my friends recommended I read this book, Born to Run, which if anyone knows what this book is, it's like a, it has like a cult following in the running world. Um, and it, one of the big things that the, the book advocates for is like, minimalist running or like running with shoes that have basically that have that don't have any cushioning in them or have a zero drop um on the ground and the kind of classic kind of image that comes to mind is the the toe shoes the rubber toe shoes i don't have a pair of those but the book did convert me to um minimalist running and like minimalist basic shoes um, so that's been, that's been fun. My wife um, is going to love that recommendation. She's a, she's a shoe minimalist. She has the toe shoes. There you go. Yep. yep there you go. Yep. Yeah, no, this book, this book has like, it's, it's funny, but it, it was, it was an entertaining read. Um, and, and then I've been getting into, I've, I've, I did a, well, a Spartan race for the first time a couple of weeks ago. That was a lot more fun than I expected. Like I've always kind of from a distance associated those things with like toxic masculinity and rolled my eyes. But um, it was actually super fun. Um, and I'm going to do them again and again and again. So, um, But then on a little bit more kind of on-brand response, but super relevant for this podcast and that I'm actually excited about it. Um, been chatting with a number of uh, Anglican priests, but particularly rectors, about you know resources to teach about sexual stewardship for all people, LGBT plus topics, vocational singleness, Christian marriage, yada, yada, yada. How can we do that? And just realizing that like the lectionary is this unbelievable resource for kind of organizing how we do that. And so I'm in the process of putting together maybe a cohort of priests where we'll go through the lectionary, kind of the two-year calendar. We'll pull out all of the all of the Sundays where there's opportunities to speak about, where, where the, the, the readings lend themselves to opportunities to teach about. Uh, how all of us are made for intimacy in the context of human family. What is Christian marriage? What is vocational singleness? How are those broken? Talking about uh, broken sex, broken sex, broken broken gender. Um, talking about um, uh, pornography, masturbation. Talking about divorce and your marriage. Talking about procreation and contraception. All these kinds of things. And then have a two-year calendar where we, I mean, select what are those Sundays that we're going to preach on different topics and have little kind of quick um <clears throat> outline for the main ideas that we would want to um get to and be able to confidently look at this two-year program and know over two years i'm going to hit all i'm going to offer a systematic theology and build it out for my congregation and it and it's careful and it's and it's incremental and it's strategic um and then have a cohort of 
of priests who basically commit to, to, to sticking to this plan and being able to connect kind of off online um, and support each other in like essentially writing our homilies for those Sundays. And because we're all addressing this, the same scriptures, the same topics, and the same main talking points each of those Sundays, we can do a lot of like um, uh, crowdsourcing of the content and references and research and that kind of stuff. So it's not begun yet by any means, but I'm like really excited about this idea. And I've been talking with uh, my bishop about this idea and he's really jazzed about it. So um, yeah, if there's anyone listening that is also jazzed about this kind of thing, um, hit me up and we're gonna make it happen. Very cool, very cool. So for me, uh, I also listened to a podcast recently, but it was recommended to me. I don't even remember when the podcast actually came out, um, but it was an episode of of that one show, um, The Art of Manliness or whatever. But they had this this guest on who had written a book and started a theater troupe. I think his name's Brian Dorries, um, and and it's called the Theater of War, both the book and the theater group that he um, that he works with. And um, what they do is they uh, they produce stage versions of Greek tragedies specifically for people with PTSD um, mm. or who have experienced other forms of trauma. And this is based on the theory that Greek tragedies were a way to introduce young adults to the idea of trauma um, mm. in a responsible way to help them deal with it. And of course, uh, I mean, a lot of the actors in those plays would have been vets. Um, from various wars in the Greco-Roman world. And um, so they uh, kind of the whole audience coming together with the with the acting mm -hmm. troupe would have had these, you know, hor horrible, horrible experiences. And, and tragedy was kind of a way to not solve the issue, but to work through it together. And so they started uh, putting on these stage, and they have some really well-known actors. Like I think Bill Murray's done stuff with them hmm. um, put on stage. They don't they don't record their performances um, because they don't want them to be consumed. It's something that people need to participate in. Um, and so there's like qu question and answers and sharing after they do the after they do the plays and stuff. Um, but it's really cool. And uh, I just I love the whole idea of it. And and I, you know, I'm sort of a classicist. I was classically educated. I've been a classical educator. And, um, and it's always cool to see um, just how relevant these texts are to even the modern person, you know. And um, and I think they're doing a good job uh, with that. So uh, theater of war is something that I am into lately. Well, Peter, uh, thanks again for joining us today. Um, if people want to find you, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, um, so my uh, website has a lot of kind of free resources and videos and deeper dives into lots of the stuff we talked about here. Uh, and so that's my first name. Uh, P-I-E-T-E-R-L and then Valk, V as in Victor, A-L-K.com. Uh, Peter L. Valk.com with an extra I in Peter. Um, and then that's also my handle on um, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, if anyone wants to connect on there, um, at Peter L. Valk with an extra I in Peter. Um, and um, in particular, we had a, you know, a, a brief conversation at the beginning of the podcast about you know, why I use the language that I use and use the word gay, particularly in an industry context. Um, and there is a, kind of an extended deep dive into that question um, on the website. And so if uh, people are curious and kind of engaging with my thinking a little bit more deeply and then even responding, uh, that's a good place to start. Excellent. 
Excellent. Thank you. Well, listeners, uh, you can find Peter on all those places and you can find us also on Facebook and Twitter and um, and all the other social medias. You can uh, subscribe to us. Please rate and review us as well. Um, and you can join the communion of Patreon Saints over at Patreon for $5 a month. Father Creighton, will you give us a blessing to close our conversation today? Absolutely. Uh, let us pray. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen.